Heather Tanana wants you to think about water. If you stopped right now and looked around you, everything around you needed water to be produced. You know, you're most likely drinking something, doesn't even have to be water. You know, maybe it's now you're having a glass of wine, right? That uses water. Everything, the paint on your walls uses water. The average American uses roughly 100 gallons of water a day and barely thinks about it. But in the Navajo Nation, it's a lot less. You look at residents on Navajo Nation, you know, the average water hauler is using about seven to eight gallons of water a day. Some families you know, are really rationing it down to two to three gallons a day even. Heather is a law professor at the University of Utah. She grew up in the nation. And when she says water hauler, she means someone literally hauling water from a public source to their home. You're having to carry these gallon uh, containers with you and fill up whatever you need for the week and take it back with you. You know, this often requires a truck because these, these barrels are really large. So you're literally lugging heavy jars of water just up and down and back and forth. Right. Five, you know, imagine five gallon barrels or larger, right? Having to carry that full of water. Quite a task. The Navajo Nation covers about 27,000 square miles. That's a little bigger than the state of West Virginia. And about a third of the people who live there can't access clean, reliable water. It is quite different from what I think the average American would be used to. The real disparities that exist, I wasn't aware of until I left the reservation. That lack of resources, specifically the lack of water, is at the heart of Arizona v. Navajo Nation. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case back in March. We will hear argument this morning in case 21-1484, Arizona versus the Navajo Nation and the consolidated case. Mr. Liu? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. And while states in part of the region came to an agreement yesterday about how they intend to split the water available, the Navajo have largely been left out of that conversation. Today on the show, what does the U.S. government owe the Navajo Nation? And if the Native community needs clean water, who's responsible for making sure they get it? I'm Mary C. Curtis, in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You've given us a little sense of just how vast Navajo Nation is. It spans several states. It's the size of the state of West Virginia. So for such a huge area 
of space and the lack of water access, it does seem like a really big contrast to nearby cities that are growing, like Santa Fe and Tucson, where I used to live, actually, and Phoenix, that for the most part seem to have always gotten enough water to support their growth, right? Absolutely. And that was a concerted effort by the federal government, you know, to invest in these other communities outside and off of the reservation. So in the U.S., you know, we know how to support a thriving, growing community in an arid environment. We've done it. That's what Phoenix is. All of these towns you've talked about, they require investment, though. And the federal government, despite having enforceable legal responsibility to tribal nations through treaties and other commitments, the government didn't do that investment. And that's the conditions we're experiencing still to this day on the reservation. Well, let's talk about that history. It's long, it's complicated. These roots, don't they go back to the 19th century? The government relegated tribes to reservations, but they guaranteed to these tribes that they would be permanent homelands. So when the Navajo Nation was established, what was promised in terms of water access? That's uh, exactly what happened, you know, as tribes were moved and displaced or limited and confined to certain areas. The government often made promises in treaties or other um, formal kind of declarations. And for Navajo Nation, their treaty included specific language about the land that they were given, their reservation being their permanent homeland, uh, about them being able to utilize it for agricultural purposes and development. And there's also some language in there that the federal government would uh, take action and act laws for the tribe and its people uh, to prosper. You can't prosper and thrive as a community without reliable water. So we're talking about follow through, right? Follow through on these promises, because we know that as America grew throughout the 20th century, all these big water infrastructure projects were built all around the country. They started to establish water rights. So where did the native tribes fall in these conversations? Were they a part of them? Were any major water rights given to them? Water infrastructure projects set up for them? Really good question, because there's there's a lot of different components that can play into this. So facilitating access to water, that's a different question from water rights. Who has the right to access water at a certain point and put it to use? And so, you know, your question kind of brings up both of these elements. There are several different federal agencies, the Indian Health Service, U.S. Department of Agriculture, Uh, Environmental Protection Agency, you know, you could really go on and list over 10 different agencies that have a program that can help build tribal water infrastructure projects. And so to some extent, the federal government has recognized its treaty and trust responsibilities to have these programs, but they've always been historically underfunded and have gone a long way to closing that water gap. Bottom line, water infrastructure in Native communities does exist, but it isn't funded well enough to fill the water gap. That leaves water rights, which brings us to the Supreme Court case that started in March. 
the Navajo Nation is arguing that the federal government has a legal duty to protect the tribe's water rights, the right it has to use the water from a water source. Both the tribe and the U.S. government agree that Indian reservations have a right to water. But how responsible is the federal government for ensuring they actually get it? The Ninth Circuit found that the Navajo Nation can make a claim against the United States for failing its, really it was the trust responsibility that they, as part of their treaties and these water rights that they're entitled to, um, that the federal government needs to plan and assess the tribe's water needs. And so procedurally, this is just whether or not the nation can even make that claim. It doesn't mean they'll win in the end or who knows after all these arguments are made, expert witnesses brought in, right? It's just, are we going to let the nation make that argument and claim that the federal government failed its responsibility? They have to assess and plan for the tribe's water needs. So since you're not going to actually get something concrete, but just the right to make that claim, what exactly is the Navajo Nation hoping to get out of this case? Well, they they want to be able to move forward to get the federal government um, to do something, to be able to say that promises made have to be enforced. That's really where they want to go. Um, And what's a little concerning is even though that's a narrow question and scope that they should be allowed to proceed on, the U.S. Supreme Court could issue their ruling more broadly. They might touch on other issues, right? And so that's why even though this is really a narrow procedural question of whether the nation can proceed in their lawsuit, there's the potential for it to have a much broader impact if the court decides to address other questions. When you talk about this being a narrow ruling, Heather, but it having the possibility of having a much broader impact, in what ways? Are there any concrete examples you can give? Yeah, well, I think that really goes to this current Supreme Court makeup and that in other cases, they've shown a willingness to overrule and set aside prior case law that had been well settled and relied upon, like the Dobbs decision and the right to have an abortion, right? Regardless of your position on that, that was very well settled law. If they decide to comment and make a ruling about tribal water rights or the federal trust and treaty responsibility, they could, depending on you know what they say, it could impact the way that responsibility is interpreted or impact tribal water rights. And in another extension, just water rights in general. After the break, the Navajo Nation wants access to the Colorado River, but so do a whole lot of other people. How's that complicating the fight for Native water rights? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Supreme Court has heard the oral arguments in the case. How did these go? What arguments were the lawyers for the Navajo Nation making? And what arguments were the lawyers for the government making and countering? Yeah, so the nation really, again, was focusing in on the government's promises that were made to them as part of their treaty. At the heart of their argument, it's just federal government, you promised us this homeland We need water for a homeland. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The Senate ratified two treaties with the Navajo Nation. In the 1868 treaty, the United States promised the Navajos a permanent homeland. Both parties understood that in promising the Navajos their land, the United States was also promising them the water it needed to sustain life in the arid Southwest. Those treaties are specific sources of law that give the nation rights to water and impose duties on the government to secure that water. But for years, the United States has failed to fulfill that promise. Today, the average person... Now, the federal government very uh, strongly tried to rebut that responsibility, saying, yes, tribes have water rights, but it's not dependent upon the federal government to help them in any way access and obtain water. So tribes are on your own. The dispute here is about something different whether the United States owes the Navajo Nation a judicially enforceable affirmative duty to assess the tribe's water needs, develop a plan to meet them, and then carry out that plan by building water supply infrastructure on the reservation. The answer to that question is no. Just as the 1860- Are you optimistic about this case? I am actually. I think I am optimistic at this point. Um, Others have kind of broken down where they think the justices stand and that it looks like it could be a split and go either way. But this argument, I thought, was a little different in that several of the Supreme Court justices were talking about the history of Navajo Nation, uh, the tribe, its people, and seemed to really get a decent handle on what that past history meant, entering into treaties with the government, and understanding the conditions that are experienced on the nation. And that was, I think, a little different than some prior arguments we've had before the court where no one seems to get it. What if the Navajo Nation loses this case? What would that mean for the future of water rights and the future on the reservation? I mean, I think it's it would be incredibly unfortunate with the lack of kind of federal action. We've already seen nonprofits 
coming in to help, but it, it shouldn't be their responsibility, right? These kind of nonprofits, third parties, this is a promise that was made by the federal government. They have that responsibility. So a lot is riding on this. Do the rights to the Colorado River factor in here? They could, right? And that was the argument of the states coming in and saying, you know, if you allow Navajo Nation to proceed, it could throw all of the Western water rights into chaos and disarray. It could impact, you know, state rights, this and that. You know, maybe, maybe not. We don't know until Navajo Nation is able to go through this assessment and plan of what their water needs are, and they're asking the feds to help with that. And if they do need more water, say from the lower Colorado River, then there's a process to follow for that. Some background here. The Colorado River supplies a huge portion of the water used by California, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming. But because of climate change and a years-long drought in the West, the river is getting depleted fast. Yesterday, after a heated battle, the three states that comprise the lower basin, Arizona, California, and Nevada, came to an agreement to cut their water use until 2026. But how tribes like the Navajo factor into the conversation is still unresolved. So there are still several tribes, 12 actually, that have not fully resolved their tribal water rights and interest in the Colorado River. With climate change and decreasing supplies, water supply being available, I think it makes those um, negotiations and discussions to resolve the outstanding water rights more tense, right? Basically a water law 101. <laughs> if, if you have a senior water right, um, it's gonna get filled and the junior water rights will get cut off when there's supply shortages. I guess I, I think it's important to have certainty that those tribes, they need to know what their water rights are, how much they're entitled to. And then at that stage, once we kind of have settled out all of the different interests, then those stakeholders can engage on an equal playing field with one another. We already pay farmers and others to not use water right? Tribes can be a part of that. And they already have. We have some of our Arizona tribes, Colorado River Indian tribes, Gila River, where they helped the state during shortages by, um, you know, leasing or marketing some of their water right interests. And so solution, we can come up with solutions. We can be creative, um, but tribes need to be a part of that. And they can't until we've fully resolved and settled out all of the interests. So while this case is being worked out, do you see anything changing in terms of water access anytime soon? Well, I mean, again, on the ground, there are people who are fighting to close that gap, increase access, nonprofits, and the tribes themselves. The tribes are like Navajo Nation, whether it's bringing legal lawsuits or engaging in discussions, There, there is movement. And I think the more the general public is aware of this, the more we can use our power when we vote, right? And, and just bringing the greater awareness that comes to these challenges. Again, I'm trying to be optimistic here, right? Because what's the alternative? is <laughs> to be really sad about it. But um, I think that is making a difference. 
Thank you, Heather, for being a guest on What Next. Thanks so much. Ayehe. Heather Tanana is an assistant professor at law at the University of Utah and a citizen of the Navajo Nation. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting help from Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is a senior director of podcast operations here at Slate. I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.